0: Good morning, everyone, and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. Today is Sunday, April nineteenth, two thousand and twenty. The share IDs for Friday, April seventeenth, are the following: for the seven a.m. Eastern Big Book study, fourteen thousand four hundred and sixty. That's one four four six zero, and for the ten a.m. Eastern Big Book study. 14,461. That's 14461. This morning, a vision for you presents promises coming true even in loss and grief. OA stands for the proposition that the 12 steps gives us freedom from the bondage of our disease and sets us on a new path, clearing the way to the promises of recovery. OA's 12 steps are a group of principles, spiritual in their nature, which, if practiced as a way of life, can expel the obsession to compulsively overeat and enable the sufferer to become happily and usefully whole. We submit to a simple process that is not easy, yet takes us to a place we've never been. The results are disproportionate to our efforts, yet our efforts are required to sustain and enlarge it. Hence, the big book states that we trudge the road of happy destiny. Trudge to walk deliberately and slowly with a lot of effort. Those of us who trudge the road of recovery know that pain, adversity, and challenges are a part of life and a part of our journey. Trudging is the work of a lifetime. There are some hills we climb over and over again from the bottom day in and day out. Yet there are certain instances, certain fateful dips and rises in the terrain of our destinies that reconfigure the altitude of our entire landscape. During these ordeals, we can be either tossed to the abyss or hoisted on high. The adversity during these times, we in recovery have a choice, a choice to implement the 12 steps and strengthen our reliance on God. Through the process of the 12 steps and a relationship with God, we can be lifted and elevated to a different plateau. Yes, we can experience the promises of recovery even in pain, even in adversity, even in loss and grief. Joining us to share her experience strength and hope on this topic is Phoebe B, a recovered compulsive overeater from Vermont. Phoebe is dedicated to the 12-step path of recovery. And she's here to carry the message of recovery. And it's with great appreciation and a pleasure to welcome Phoebe to the line. Good morning, Phoebe.
1: Good morning, Leah. And thank you for your service. And thank you for the opportunity for me to share my <clears throat> experience, strength, and hope. Um, so I'm going to first talk a little bit about uh, what what happened, what was it like, and then I'm going to move into the promises. The first 10 minutes will be a little bit of um, history um, about me as I am an abstinent food addict from Vermont. I just turned 70. Um, I am maintaining between an 80 and 85-pound weight loss. My highest weight was 250 pounds. So there you get the statistics. Um, My task today is to be open enough to allow God to speak to you through me. I'm going to read some of what of my story. Um, I'm just more comfortable sometimes reading, sometimes I don't read. I'll just speak to you and hopefully it'll come from my heart to you. So I was born into a post-World War II family. I am an official baby boomer. Um, My biological mom died um, when I was six months old. My dad remarried a year later. Um, I experienced a lost childhood from seven years of sexual abuse. So if I was passing around um, my little book that has pictures of me in it, you would not see pictures of me uh, um, during those seven years out of respect to those little girls. Um, In the post-war years in the 50s and 60s, death and abuse were things that just were not talked about. I was also born into a family with a propensity for addiction. So what was it like? Well, at age eight, early in the abuse, I discovered that eating sweet foods in volume could tamp down the feelings I was having and had no capacity to understand and could not share because I was repeatedly threatened if I told I'd be killed, as would my family. Remember I said I was born into a family with a propensity to addiction, and my addiction blossomed. Then it took a little bit of a side road in high school and college, and in early adulthood. And in my photos, I call these the smoke and mirror years. Um, on that side road, I was still in the food, but with the addition of illicit drugs, sports restricting, then binging, over exercising, smoking, food, came, food as the main addiction came cascading back to me when as an elementary school principal um, in the early 1990s, a child of age eight revealed her abuse to me. I did all the professional things to advocate and care for her. And then I fell back into the food to quell those same feelings I had at age eight and had no capacity to deal with. I didn't have the capacity to deal with those um, at that time in my early 40s either. And I'm just going to stop here for a minute because I want to say that I know that there are many people on the line today who also have lost childhoods due to
2: sexual abuse.
1: Flour sugar volume, overspending for the next three decades, I gained weight very quickly. And I asked myself, would it be experiences, travel, clothing that would be the fix? Maybe therapy, maybe hiking 100 miles in the Rockies. I was in and out of therapy with lovely people who had no capacity to deal with a food addict who also had a trauma history. I did commercial weight loss programs. All the things you probably have done. Self-help books. Thousands spent on everything you spent money on. That thing was going to be the fix, including medications, Prozac, Zoloft, Wellbutrin, Topamax. I lived in purgatory. From the outside, um, I was a single mom living the perfect divorce. I've had two successful careers. I was a respected community member. I had a wonderful second marriage with a well-blended family. The underbelly of that, suicidal thoughts, manipulation, lying, debt. I couldn't stop eating, and I couldn't stop from starting. I got a lot of acknowledgement from my community, family, friends. I received local awards, state awards, national awards. I had boxes of thank you cards that I saved. And I think I saved them because it was never enough. That box, that two boxes, that three boxes in my closet were never enough. Nowhere was there anybody but me in this picture. Self-reliance had been my survival until it wasn't anymore. I exhausted my friends and family in my constant need for acknowledgement. I didn't know how to ask for help without, being, without it being dramatic or coming across as a victim. From a family member, I saw recovery, the miracle of recovery, the fellowship, and I wanted that. In 2011, I began attending a local face-to-face meeting. In 2014, I began listening to Vision for You. I became very articulate and well-versed in the big book. I sounded really good. Notice how many I's here. Self-reliant, not surrendered. I went through the steps several times with sponsors and learned a lot through the different formats. Absolutely wonderful, wonderful people. In January 2014, I began intensive trauma therapy. In the doctor's opinion on page XXVIII, it says... Some people who came in may need extra help. That was me. The trauma work was critical in my next foray into the steps. In July 2015, I began um, a structured program that um, included weighing and measuring my food. And I got abstinent for about seven months. I had a wonderful sponsor, stepped up. I was sponsoring, speaking. Then I relapsed. I wasn't fully surrendered. I had not had a total psychic change. In the doctor's opinion on page XXIX, it says, after they have succumbed to the desire again, as so many do, and the phenomenon of craving develops, they pass through the well-known stages of the spree, emerging remorseful with a firm resolution not to drink again. This is repeated over and over, Unless this person can experience an an entire psychic change, there is little help. For several months, I did this. I'd get a new sponsor. I would relapse. Get another sponsor. Relapse. Get another sponsor. Relapse. Begin sponsoring. Relapse. So many wonderful people hung in there with me and a number of you are on the line today and it brings me to tears to imagine your faces and you hanging in there with me. I went to a program based on the 12 steps, a recovery program based on the 12 steps in April of 2016. I learned more and went deeper into the steps, but I relapsed again in August 2016. On October 27th, 2016, I hit my lowest bottom yet. was trying on winter coats um, in a closet in the upstairs of our home. None of them fit. I'd been so proud the winter before because I'd lost a lot of weight and had purchased some new winter coats with money that um, is pretty precious in our family. Um, and there I was on the floor of our closet not being able to fit into any of my winter coats. So I said to myself, and you might relate to this, well, I'm starting with a new sponsor this afternoon, so I might as well have one last binge. So I went out, store to store, bought bags of binge food, came home, and for the next several hours ate my binge foods, That was my last binge. Hopefully, it will be the last binge that I ever have in my life. But I have to do this work in order to keep myself protected from that last binge. So after a month of abstinence, I went to um, a food addiction program based on the 12 steps. And my journey into powerlessness and surrender began. In the doctor's opinion on page XXX, it says the only relief we have to suggest is entire abstinence. My journey was fully launched. I got a food plan. I had a food plan from a sponsor. I was following that exactly. Um, I was asking for help. And um, I was surrendering to me not being the director, using the God-given gift of willingness. Every day, the act of putting that food on the scale was another early lesson in surrender. I was no longer running the show. So in that food addiction treatment program, based on the 12 steps, and with my trauma therapist, I learned to talk about my feelings. So I began making phone calls. I make three phone calls a day, plus a phone call to my sponsor. And I began talking about my feelings. I get to talk about my feelings until I'm done. This is a we program in the forward of the big book. And I can't remember. I think it's the forward to the first edition. We, the first letter of we is in big italicized letters. And Joe and Charlie say that anything that's written in squiggly lines is important. And that is a gigantic we. This is a we program. So I get to talk about my feelings with my fellows until I'm done. We support each other, allowing me space to share until I'm done, and me doing the same with my fellows. Um, And that saves me from exhausting my friends. As an addict, I can obsess about many things, including feelings. So now when I do talk to family and friends, I'm in a balanced place. I've learned with guidance from sponsors, my therapist, and treatment to talk about my feelings. For me as a food addict, if I don't talk about my feelings, they will end up coming out the edges like a broken tube of toothpaste, often in a rageful way and ultimately take me back to the food. A speaker I've often heard on this meeting says food is not the problem, it's the buildup of human emotion." Normal eaters have ways to deal with those emotions. As a food addict, I didn't learn healthy ways to do that. So what I've learned, as it says, is that the only way to recovery is entire abstinence. Every night I go to bed recovered and I wake up an addict needing to do what I did the day before, to go to bed recovered that night. So I follow this routine. I weigh and measure my food. I make my phone calls. I do my reading and writing with the wonderful literature that Alcoholics Anonymous and Overeaters Anonymous offers. With help from my higher power, heard through my fellows, I've become willing to listen to something beyond myself. So with this entire abstinence, I get to go on a spiritual journey every day and live a life that is beyond my wildest dreams. So what's it like now? Well, I'm going to give you a little bit of my family history because that's where the promises will be important in what I'm going to share with you. I have three brothers. Beginning about 20 years ago, our mom was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. She died about 10 years ago. So we lived with Alzheimer's with my mom for about 10 years. For 10 years, I was her main advocate and caregiver, communicating regularly with my brothers and sister-in-law. As she declined for each of us, our grief in that long goodbye, and if you've ever lived with a person that um, succumbs to Alzheimer's, it is a long goodbye. My, all of our grief increased as we said that long goodbye. I wanted, of course, being the director, everyone to be with her to do things with her the way that I did. And I stepped on people's toes. I pissed people off. And I fractured every one of those relationships with my three brothers and my sister-in-law. My mom got great care, and my relationship with my brothers and my sister-in-law hit a low. Fast forward to the last three years. My favorite brother, David, my youngest brother, Was diagnosed with rare and aggressive prostate cancer. My relationships had been improving because of my recovery work. Slowly over my years since 2011, with the help, with the guidance of sponsors and my higher power, I had had a psychic change. But was I living it? I can only explain that by the promises. If we are painstaking about this phase of our development, well, through the process of working through the steps, I became willing to listen. I had to do an honest appraisal of myself. As part of that honest appraisal, I made amends. And those amends lasted over several years and they became living amends with my brothers and my sister-in-law. I became honest in my daily calls. It began to shift me away from self-reliance to God-reliance. To share in my, in my phone calls my basic instincts of pride, security, personal relations. And as I did those things, the greater my surrender became. It is a painstaking process and only possible with entire abstinence. On page 485 in the big book in the story, Building a New Life, it says, what I've learned is that it doesn't matter. Hardships and losses I've endured in sobriety. I have not had to go back to drinking. As long as I work the program, keep being a service, go to meetings, and keep my spiritual life together, I can live a decent life. So as I move into this next part, I may get a little bit tearful. Um, and I'm just going to describe to you the scene that I'm, that I'm sitting in right now. So I have a sun porch and I'm sitting where I do my prayer and meditation every day, where I do my phone calls every day. Um, it's not really, really warm outside yet, but inside this sun porch I have um, flowering plants. There's a forsythia bush blooming outside my window. And I'm surrounded by pictures of my family. My brothers, my brother David, pictures of me and David in our 20s, in our 30s, in our 40s. And so now I'm going to get into the tough part. On December 23rd, 2019, David came to see me to tell me he didn't have long to live. On February 11th, 2020, David died. We will not regret the past nor wish to shut the door on it. My past informs my future. On page 124 in the family afterward, it says, <clears throat> cling to the thought that in God's hands, the dark past is the greatest possession you have. The key to life and happiness for others. I know that I have a propensity to be the director and be in charge. It's actually a character defect and an asset at the same time. I'm very organized. This summer, I organized a family reunion for my family, and it was one of the greatest gifts my family ever had. David was doing pretty well at that point, and he came. My brothers came. Nieces and nephews came. Children came. Grandchildren came. And we had a delightful three days, and it was an incredible gift. And that was me using my gift of being organized. But there's a very fine line for me between being the director and being organized as a gift. And I know that. Through this painstaking process, I have learned that I have to be ever vigilant about that. So going into the weeks of David's passing, God guided me to be open, honest, listen well and deeply. When I didn't in the past, I almost ruined my relationships. We will comprehend the word serenity and no peace. I have no regrets with David or anyone else in my family because of the recovery work done in the last nine years. We will see how our experience can benefit others. I know I couldn't have done any of what I was guided and able to do during the last three years without this work. I share freely with everyone, old and new, just how this work helped me to be present for every single member of my family. And it's been hard. Um, I have three brothers, and I will never say I had three brothers. I have three brothers, and we are all very, very different. My two older brothers have been challenging in the past i 've been challenging david 's been challenging my sister in law has been challenging, but we 're all human beings and Through this process, I was able to be present for every one of them, including my husband, my family of origin, my daughter, my stepdaughters, my grandchildren. The feeling of uselessness and self-pity will disappear. During mom's decline, I was constantly manipulatively, subtly grasping for acknowledgment. And it only pissed people off, especially my sister-in-law, David's wife. I was absolutely not spiritually grounded. Now I am. It's through this painstaking process that I can be spiritually grounded. But there's never graduation. It's something I have to do every single day. I never asked for help during those years with mom. Now I do. I ask for help every day. I did during those difficult weeks at the end of David's life, I asked for help. And there are some of you on the line today who gave me that help and were there with me at every moment, And even though I wasn't physically with you, you were holding my hand. Because I did, I could be present when I was there. We will lose interest in selfish things and gain interest in our fellows. my way of grieving is becoming super organized. During mom's decline, I expected everyone else to follow suit. With David's decline, leaning in through my higher power through prayer, meditation, fellows, I was able to appreciate and acknowledge others' ways of grieving. It's not linear. Self-seeking will slip away. Self-seeking is when I allow someone else's response or reaction to define my self-worth. During mom's decline, the more pissed off people got, the more defensive I became. My biggest fear during the last three years is that I would be left out of being with David at the end of his life, that I wasn't important. Through this spiritual work, I learned to be patient and wait to be invited in. This was steps one, two, and three work. Constant praying, meditation, talking, writing, leaning in. David's family is a very private family. And when any crisis happens, their wagons are a tight circle around their campfire. I intuitively knew that mine was perched right at the edge in those last few weeks. And when they were ready, the circle would open, and it did. On February 8th, and I just want to tell you a little bit about February 8th. It was really, really cold, but it was a beautiful blue sky day in Vermont with a lot of snow, a new, a new snowfall. Um, I'm a very active person, and I was snowshoeing in the woods with my dog, and I had, I had found a rock to perch on. It was I was I was snowshoeing up a mountain. I found a rock to perch on, and I was just thinking about David. I knew that things were really bad with David. I'd been texting back and forth with my niece, but my wagon was still perched on the outside of the campfire. So I came out of the woods, and
3: um, my phone rang, and it was my sister-in-law. And she said, Phoebe, David's really declining. She said, there are signs.
1: And she was crying. And she said, he wants you. I want you. So I put my dog in the car, put my snowshoes in the car, went home. My husband, who has supported me through this recovery, I said, I need to, I need to go to David's. And I said, will you make me my lunch? So he knows the routine. He got my food notebook. He made my lunch, packed it up for me. I got in the car and I went over there and I spent every day there until David died on February 11th. Our whole attitude and outlook upon life will change. I received a gift, the gift of being present with David and his family, as well as my other two brothers. With David excuse me, I got to massage his hands, sing to him, tell him stories, wipe his brow. So for those few days before february eleventh, he was cognizant enough so that we could actually talk. My two other brothers came from far away, one lives out of the country and that was quite quite something getting him here. And thank goodness, thank you God. That the coronavirus pandemic had not hit yet,
3: we got everybody there, and I was able to do service in David's room. He was at home
1: with him, talking, laughing, looking at pictures on the wall that his daughter had put up, looking at stories he'd put on the, she'd put on the wall, helping my one oldest brother who just was so bereft, helping him know what to do.
3: Just talk to him. Just talk to him. Let's sing together. So we sang. We told stories.
1: I read him a story, one of my mom's favorite stories. And when one of us wasn't in the room with him, we were out in the living room, Laughing, playing with his grand David's granddaughter, talking to people, having pretty in depth conversations with my sister in law, really sharing very, very deeply. And then on his last day, he was in a state um, where it was clear that he was, it was his final hours. And I'd been with both of my parents when they died, so I knew. I knew that really shallow breathing. I knew what was coming. He was sweating. I got to wipe his brow. I got to massage his hands. I had a lot of time alone with him that afternoon. And I just did the things that I'd done the few days before. And then an hour, then an hour before he died, I was able to tell him that it was okay for him to go. And then my older brother and I left to come back to where we live. And um, it was a pretty hairy drive because it was snowing and it was foggy and it was slippery and it was dark. Got home and about
3: 20 minutes after I got home, my nephew called and said, he's gone. And I had no regrets. Fear of people and of economic insecurity will leave us. I was
1: afraid, but I shared it and it dissipated. I'm not afraid now. My biggest fear in every resentment turnaround that I've done is that I'm not important and invisible. Remember that little girl? That little girl was invisible, nobody saw her. Is it still there? Sometimes, yes, but all I have to do is remember the circle opened and my wagon was included. We will lose interest in selfish things and gain interest in our fellows. My sister-in-law and I shared many sacred moments from February 8th until February 28th when we had David's service. When that was all over, I intuitively knew and said it to my to my fellows and my husband, that I was under no illusion that we'd be best buds again. But I asked her what would be the best way for us to stay in touch. We were having quite a lovely conversation at the end of David's service, which was just a wonderful service. And I want to describe the setting of that service. The setting of that service was in a beautiful place in Vermont. It had snowed. There was lots of snow around. The family had gathered daffodils from florists, and so there were daffodils all around. And late in the afternoon, the clouds lifted, and right smack in the middle of the... This was in a round barn with 17, 17 sides. Right smack in the middle of that middle window was this beautiful snow-covered mountain called Camel's Hump, And to, left, to the left was another beautiful snow-covered mountain called Mount Mansfield. And there we are, my sister-in-law and I, having this conversation after most people had left. And she was just sharing some of what had happened for her in pulling together this service. And, um, and we talked a little bit more and... I said, you know, how would be the best way for me to stay in touch with you? What feels right to you? And she said, email and text. So every week since then, I sent her an email just checking in. And a couple weeks ago, I got a response thanking me for that week's long email. And I chuckled. That was one of her criticisms of me during Mom's Decline. Too many emails. The emails were too long. And at that time, I took great offense for that. This time, I took no offense and took it as, okay, a little too much, back off, and I have. And I've received short texts from her. In fact, last night, I got um, I got an email from her asking me for the address of somebody who had RSVP'd for the service. So um, the family asked me to be the person who would receive RSVPs for this service. It was a very large service. There were probably about 300 people there. And um, they were asking for RSVPs so that they would know how much food for the caterer and make sure that the space was could accommodate the number of people. So I received the RSVPs. And so I had the email addresses of the people who RSVP'd. So last night I got a an email from my sister-in-law, just kind of giving me a very quick update on how she was and could I send her um, an email address. Now my tendency would be to go, woohoo, she sent me an email and I can write back to her. I didn't initiate it. Well, Because of this program, I said, just cool it. So I sent her a very short email saying, glad to hear you're doing well. And here's the email. And I said, I saw some hepatica in the woods um, a few days ago. Spring is coming. And that was it. That was pretty good for me. We will know intuitively how to handle situations that used to baffle us. So my two older brothers and I were asked to speak at David's service. And um, we were asked by my sister-in-law um, and, and niece and nephew to speak, to to write a composite written by the three of us. Now, the three of us are very, very different and the three of us had very different relationships with David. There's a pretty big age difference between my oldest brother and David. My oldest brother is 13 years older than David. So there's a pretty wide age span. And our, and our experiences were very, very different. And um, we really struggled with this, the three of us. And I was so cautious in talking with them. I did not want to step on their toes. And so, you know, we came up with a way to do it. And I said, I'd like to be the one to read this at the service. And um, so on this particular day was a Friday, another beautiful, sparkling, Vermont, cold, snowy day, blue, blue sky. Um, I got an email from my two older brothers who said, well, you know, we're not really very happy with how this is all progressing and we want to do a video chat this afternoon. And I thought, oh, shit, excuse my language. Oh, God, how are we going to deal with this? So I sat down and I said a little prayer and asked for some guidance because I was going over to my sister-in-law's and niece and nephew's home Um, that afternoon to get together. My daughter was coming, and we were going to take a walk. And so I asked for guidance. What should I do? And the answer that I got was, you'll know. You'll know what to do. So I got in the car. I put on beautiful music. And I just kept hearing that from my higher power. You'll know what to do. So we got there. We sat around in the kitchen for a little while. I was talking with my um, my sister-in-law and my niece and my nephew in the kitchen. My daughter was talking to my niece in the other room. And we started talking about the service. And this was it. I would know. And I did. And I said, you know, we're having kind of a hard time um, writing a composite. You know, the three of us have such different relationships with David. And my nephew, who can be kind of cut and dried about things sometimes, he said, well, so, feeds you, um, you each want some time? I said, that would be great. He said, five minutes, that's enough for each of you? I said, that would be wonderful. He said, done. He sounded just like my brother. And then <clears throat> my sister-in-law said, thank you for your honesty. Are these extravagant promises? We think not. They're being fulfilled among us, sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly. They will always materialize if we work for them. On page 100 in Working with Others, it says, when we look back, we realize that the things which came to us when we put ourselves in God's hands, and that's what I did that snowy day, that beautiful, beautiful day driving over the mountain." I put myself in God's hands. When, I, when we do that, it says, when we put ourselves in God's hands, the outcome was better than anything we could have planned. Follow the dictates of a higher power and you will presently live in a new and wonderful world no matter your present circumstances. Morning. How are you doing? Somebody, somebody is unmuted. What are you doing? In the story, Gutter Bravado, on page 511 in the big book, it says, Words cannot begin to describe the feelings in my heart as I sometimes ponder how much my life has changed, how far I've come, and how much there is yet to discover. I owe the discoveries and journey to the grace of God and three words of the 12 steps. Continue, improve, and practice. And humility is the key. I always heard people talk about living in 10, 11, and 12. Continue, improve, and practice. That's what that means, living 10, 11, and 12. Recovery is dynamic. It's not static. I have to work every day at continuing to self-assess, improve by asking God for guidance to do something different, like my prayer to ask for help, to know what to do to say to my sister-in-law about speaking, to be willing to listen and be different, and then to practice is to take action. When the time was right, I knew it. And I acted by being honest and sharing the challenge. So before I close, I want to just say that Surrounded by my family on this beautiful sun porch. My husband is in the other room listening. I feel so grateful for this program of recovery and the promises. I hope what I've described to you is my recovery in action. And I hope that these experiences in my life through grief and loss have somehow resonated with you and has helped the promises to be living and vibrant through my story. And thank you for allowing me to share. I'll pass.
0: And thank you, Phoebe, for this beautiful and inspiring presentation. Thank you for sharing your experience with all of us this morning. Phoebe's contact information will be given at the conclusion of this recording, so you'll need to stay tuned for that. The share ID for Phoebe's presentation this morning, 14,468. That's 14468. We will now transition to question and answer segment. You can pose a question by pressing star 1 to unmute. I need your name, including the first letter of your last name. Marsha, Marsha, what's your initial? D. Uh, D. Simone J. Simone J. Veronica
2: B. S. B.
0: Terry K. Terry K. I missed two prior to that.
1: Veronica B. Aaliyah S.
0: Veronica B. And who else? I'm sorry.
4: Aaliyah S.
0: Aaliyah S. Christina J. Christina J. Okay, that's a great group to get us started. Again, it'll be Marsha D., Simone J., Veronica B., Aaliyah S., Terry K., and Christina J. Everybody please mute, except for Marsha D. Questions only, please. Thank you. Go ahead, Marsha.
1: Phoebe, thank you so much, and my sympathies to you and your family, but what a beautiful,
5: beautiful gift you've given us today. Um, My question is just... um, Your journey beyond um, how you continue to put your program into action as you uh, continue to resolve your grief and
3: go forward without David? Oh, gosh, Marcia, thank you for the question. Um,
1: I think my journey beyond um, is to keep doing what I've been doing. Um, Every day I Follow my food plan. I do reading and writing. Um, I talk to my fellows about what's on my mind. Um, this morning, before I spoke, um, I had some um, conversations with fellows about how I was feeling. Um, I talked to David this morning. Um, I went outside to feed the birds, and I know that one of the things that he did while he was dying was watch the birds. So this morning I watched the birds too. I cried this morning. I cried a little bit on this line. And I will just keep going forward with that, um, talking about what's in my heart and um, praying and meditating um, and leaning into the program and into my higher power. And, you know, it's basically what I do every day. Um whether I'm in grief or not, joy, grief, um, you know, and without grief and suffering, I really can't experience joy. So thank you for the question,
2: Marcia.
0: Yes. Thank you, Marcia. Simone Jay, your turn.
2: Hi. Thank you so much. Um, That was amazing. I, this is Simone Jay in Florida. Um, I heard at the beginning of your share that you said you were going to um, hopefully speak to us, um, you know, through the higher power. And I was thinking in my head, yeah, yeah, yeah. and um, <laughs> it's exactly what I needed to hear. I, too, um, lost a brother, um, also three brothers. Um, and I also say I have three brothers, even though one has passed. My brother used to feed the ducks when he was dying. Um, I... Um, actually, recently, like a couple of days ago, wrote a letter to my brother. Um, I have trouble connecting with um, with my higher power and with knowing that my brother's there. Um, I I know that my higher power is there. I I have faith in it, but sometimes I don't feel it, and I don't know if I'm looking to feel some kind of like electricity connection. Or or what it is and I I just thought I'd ask how you um, connect like is there a practical thing that you do thank you
1: Simone thank you for the question I'm sorry for your loss also
3: um it's a great question you know in the big book it talks about how we um,
1: we know that we, when we turn on a light switch, the electricity is going to go on. What's happened for me over time is that um, I know that my higher power is there. Um, I didn't have a white light experience. I've never had a white light experience. It's been very gradual. And the things that I do every day allow me to be an open channel to my higher power. Um, following my food plan, the clean food plan. I have no substances in my body. That's the first step, is to allow me to, to hear what my higher power has to say. Getting quiet. And sometimes that quiet is in the woods. Sometimes it's, a, it's in the dark of the early morning. Sometimes it's listening to favorite hymns. I have a Spotify station that I made that has favorite hymns on it. Sometimes I was raised a Quaker and um, sometimes I go to Quaker meeting. Sometimes I go to church. Sometimes it's a, it's in the silences. Sometimes it's in um, a smile that I see on one of my grandchildren's faces. Sometimes it's having a lovely conversation with a fellow or a friend. Um, So my higher power is all around me and it's, am I open enough to hear it? So I know, I know that my higher power is there. Can't touch it. I can't feel it. It's an intuitive sense as it talks about in the spiritual experience. It's just that known sense that something greater than me is out there. So I hope that answers your question, Simone.
0: Thank you, Simone, for your question this morning. Veronica B.,
3: your turn. Star 1 to unmute. Hi, Veronica, compulsive overeater calling from California. Uh,
1: good morning. Thank you for your share. God, um, I want to ask so many questions, but um I want to be mindful of the time. Uh, you mentioned, uh, I love how you describe when taking care of your mom, the long goodbye. I have a 79-year-old mother with Alzheimer's, uh, two years into it, and I am a part-time caretaker. And uh,
4: I don't know how every time I leave her,
1: I cry in the car Because of I've never heard anyone describe anything like a long goodbye, and that's how it feels. It feels like a long goodbye. Or I feel like I'm grieving the person I used to once know. And uh, also I'm grieving that my boyfriend lives in Spain, and so we can't see each other. So every day I feel tremendous grief. And my question is, and I'm supposed to create a concept of my higher power and being in program for all these years, I feel very uninspired. My question is, how do you feel, how do you get the feeling of, like, keep
0: going, keep going with all the feelings of grief and just everything
3: you've experienced? How do you keep going? Thank you. And thank you for your share. It's just so beautiful.
1: Thank you, Veronica. And um, I'm sorry to hear that you're having to go through that with your mom. Um, well, first of all, um I was not in recovery when my mom was um going through Alzheimer's. Uh and so your question is how to how do you keep going through grief? And I think it's again doing the same thing that I did yesterday and the day before. And um gratitudes. Mm. I do five gratitudes every single day. Um, And my daughter and I have this very sweet thing that we now do every morning. Early in the morning, we share three gratitudes. And, I mean, I can tell you a gratitude right now looking out my window is I have two Forsythia bushes that are blooming. Those of you who live in warmer climates, you know, that's not a big deal. Here in Vermont, it is a big deal (laughs) that I have this burst of yellow outside my window I'm watching the birds on the bird feeder right now. Um, There's so much to be grateful for that gets me out of myself and into appreciating what's all around me. Um, You know, it might be um, at the grocery, when I go to the grocery store, I go to the senior hours on Thursday mornings now at the grocery store and the The um, produce manager uh, was a student when I was um, an elementary school principal, so I've known her for years, and she's been looking more and more stressed out. Every week when I go, I say, thank you, Jackie. Thank you for the work that you're doing. I say it to the cashiers. I say it to the people that are stocking the shelves. I say it to our postman. We put a big sign up out on our mailbox on our porch the other day saying thank you for delivering our mail every day. Finding gratitude in the what seemed to be the smallest things. You know, the joy that you might see in um, the squirrels playing outside. Um, so it's seeing the joy and gratitude because like I said a minute ago, feeling, you cannot feel joy unless you feel sorrow and and grief. You know, it's the yin and the yang of it. Um, So I would say, you know, gratitude, that's a pretty simple way to begin, is to just look out your window. And what are you grateful for? You know, if you're in a place where you can go for a walk, boy, that's something to be grateful for right now, that's for sure, because there are a lot of people who can't do that. You know, your boyfriend who's in Spain um, might not be able to do that right now. Um, my brother who lives in Lima, Peru, he can't go out. He's grateful that he has a balcony. And I say that to him when I talk to him every week. I am grateful that you can get out on your balcony and get some fresh air. So that's what I would say. Start with gratitudes. Thank you. Thank you, Veronica.
0: Yes. Thanks, Veronica, for your question. Aliyah S., your turn. Star one, done, mute.
1: Hi, this is
6: Aliyah S. in California. And my question is, you mentioned doing trauma work, and I wasn't sure you experienced that when you were slipping and
1: sliding with all the previous sponsors and relapsing and getting abstinent. And then I was just wondering if you had experience with trauma work then versus doing it now with continued and tired abstinence, if you were able to dive deeper, what that experience was like um, being not abstinent versus your time in recovery now?
3: Um,
1: yeah, so um, the trauma work happened during um, a time when I was doing a fourth step and I was abstinent. Um, and my therapist had um, a lot of experience with um Trauma, food addiction, and the 12 steps. So I don't really want to go too deeply into that, Aaliyah. And I would be so happy to talk with you if you wanted to, further about this. If you wanted to give me a call, um, but certainly um, being abstinent and working the program helped me to go deeper into my trauma work.
4: Yes.
0: Thank you, Aaliyah, for the question. Thank you, Phoebe, for understanding and following the parameters here. Thank you for your good judgment. Okay, Terry Kay, your question please.
2: This is Terry Kay from Missouri and I too um, would like to call you offline about trauma and
0: grief, but I will
2: stick with my question, which is relating to feeling invisible. Um, When you've had the freedom from needing others' approval,
0: Um, does that ever sneak back in where you find you're seeking approval again? And if so, um, how do you respond to that?
1: Oh, my gosh. Yes, I'm an addict. Um, (laughs) Of course. And, um, you know, that's why I talk to a sponsor every day. That's why I do a nightly review. The nightly review catches that. Um, And if the nightly review doesn't catch it, my sponsor catches it. She actually caught something. The other day, um, uh, when I got on the phone with her in the morning, and I said I'm feeling kind of irritated today, and but it hadn't shown up in my nightly review the night before, and she said, "So you're irritated? What's going on? You didn't that didn't show up in your nightly review?" And so we talked about it, processed it. Um, I talked to my fellows about that. People who know me very well um, know that that's an issue for me. And so, you know, I think that um, my brother David and his wife, actually all three of my brothers and my sister-in-law have been my biggest teachers about that. Um, And I learned to be pretty self-reflective through this program to notice when that's creeping back in and that's a really great way of describing it Terry it does creep back in because we're human and we're addicts and um you know there's there's grandiosity that that blossoms in us sometimes and you know like i said in my um when i was talking earlier there's no graduation we're never done these things will come up but how it's different is that I don't live there today. I don't live in needing to keep all of those cards and letters. Um, You know, I don't live needing to um, manipulatively fish for compliments. I don't live there anymore. Um, But does it creep in? Yeah, it does. And we have a program to lean into and a higher power to lean into to help us to not live there. So thank you for the question.
0: Thank you, Terry. K. Okay. Christina J. your turn.
6: Thank you, Leah. Thank you for your service. Always so appreciated. Um, thank you, Phoebe. Uh, I related to everything you said. I've had great loss in my life. Um, But I really want to go back to the very beginning when you talked about the lost child, and that really has been revealing itself to me lately. And, of course, I had extreme danger in my home between the ages of one and five, and uh, sexual abuse, and um, I was witnessing physical and emotional abuse as well. Very dangerous place, and I disappeared. Sorry. (laughs) So how did you begin to find healing around that lost child? And um, it's not that I need to go back and get memories, obviously. I don't have any memory uh, up until about 11 years old. I just knocked everything out of my head, my spirit. I couldn't deal with it as a child. And then um, as you begin to find this healing around this lost child, um, how do you continue to deal with the extreme sensitiveness that, um, at least I still feel um and needing validation and needing to feel like I'm okay still uh as you move forward in this uh physical recovery from an emotional recovery, spiritual recovery in the twelve step program. Thank you
1: so um christina, I um would say to you too if you know if you'd like to call me at a later time to talk in more detail about that i'd love to do that. I can only say that. Um, you know, we we are so blessed to have a program that um, gives us directions. And, um, you know, if you listen to Joe and Charlie, Joe and Charlie say you don't start in the middle of the big book. You wouldn't start in the middle of an algebra book. Um, you start at the beginning. And so starting at the beginning, um, yes, I needed to look at those things. And yes, as I said, in the doctor's opinion where it says that some people need, more, need outside help. I needed outside help. And um, I was very blessed to find someone who was so gifted. Um, and at the same time, I am working a program. And I um, continue, improve, and practice in 10, 11, and 12 every single day. And I cannot stress enough the idea of gratitudes because it gets me out of myself. And if I'm feeling invisible, that comes up in my nightly review. Um, But you can't do 10, 11, and 12 until you've gone through one through nine. Um, It's sequential and you can't do one through nine unless you're entirely abstinent Um, because at least that's my opinion. Entirely abstinent, and it says it in the big book, um, nothing will show you the greatest relief more than entire abstinence because entire abstinence allows me to be an open channel to my higher power. So thank you for the question.
0: Yes, thank you, Christina J. Who else would like to pose a question to Phoebe? You can do so by pressing star one to unmute. Irene
4: Loretta H.
0: Irene B, K. Loretta H.
7: Tina R.
0: Tina R. Marina K. Marina K. Anyone else? This may be our final invitation
3: for questions.
2: Leah, you heard Irene, right?
3: Correct. Yes. Thank you. Star one, Michael. Michael. Oh. Leah S. M.
0: Michael M. Leah S.
5: Jessica G. Kathy
0: jo P. The Kathy Joe. Judith R. And Judith R. will wrap it. Okay, excellent. Everybody, please mute, except for Irene B., followed by Loretta H. Thank you. Go ahead, Irene, with your question, please.
2: Good morning, beautiful ladies. What a beautiful service that you are doing for each and every one of us. I am so very grateful for this amazing talk lately that all these talks have been so incredibly powerful. I'm Irene B., a gratefully recovering bulimic from Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Um, I couldn't agree with you more about the gratitudes. I found that to be the antidote to any negativity, so I, I, I'm so thankful that, that you really focused on that. My question to you is, uh, you talk about your nightly review. I was hoping that you could elaborate on that a little bit, if you don't mind, please.
3: Sure. So,
1: um thank you thank you Irene. So in the big book, um it tells us that um at the end of the day, we look at um It says, when we retire at night on page 86, we constructively review our day. Were we resentful, selfish, dishonest, or afraid? Do we owe an apology? Have we kept something to ourselves which should be discussed with another person at once? Were we kind and loving toward all? What could we have done better? Were we thinking of ourselves most of the time? Or were we thinking of what we could do for others, of what we could pack into the stream of life? Um, and there's more to that paragraph. So um, that's what I do every night, at the at every day. At the end of the day, I answer those questions. Um, and some days it's, no, I wasn't resentful. No, I wasn't selfish. No, I wasn't dishonest. No, I wasn't afraid. And other days, it's pretty robust. Um, and what I've been taught is that if I did a tenth step during the day, That 10 says we continue, and in that paragraph of the 10th step on page 84, continue is written four times in that paragraph. So if if I did a proper 10th step during the day by either picking up the phone and talking to a fellow about a resentment that that I was having, um, at the end of the day, if there's still residual things for that, then I put them on my nightly review. If there aren't, I don't. It's done. Um, So the directions for a nightly review, um, Irene,
3: are on page 86 in the big book. Thank Thank you, Irene. Thank you, Irene, for your question. Loretta H.,
0: your turn. Star 1 to unmute.
4: Good morning, Phoebe, and thank you, thank you for your generous, generous qualification, and also I am so sorry for your loss. This is Loretta H. from Raleigh, and my, one of my favorite passages is, My Darkest Past is My Greatest asset." and um, you have just spoken about how you managed as a youth because of survival, and now as me as an adult, I want to know how you digest, what is the difference between, you said you're very organized, and I am too, I'm a very busy lady, or consider myself very busy, and the difference between that and service, and how you get to that place of neutrality, because I struggled with that, and so I would love to know how you, well, how you digest it so that's my question i hope it's understandable thank you thank you loretta i think
1: i understand your question you know how do i balance between slipping into being the director and trying to arrange the lights and the dancers and um all the things on the stage to being of service and i think the example that i gave of um the, um, our family reunion, um, you know, I, I process that with a lot of people, a lot of my fellows, um, you know, tell, what do you think about this? You know, me, what do you think about this? You know, and that's the beauty of the fellowship is that people get to know you over time. Um, we're not alone anymore. It's a we program, and people give me honest feedback. Um, well, yeah, that sounds a little bit too direct tutorial. Um, You know, I would process it with my with my brothers. Um, I would process it with my stepdaughters, my family. You know, hey, what do you think about this? Or, you know, I also knew that just saying for this family reunion, okay, this is a lot of people, and I'm just going to assign things for people to do um, and bring. And that worked great. Um, but other things that were a little dicier, like, um, my two older brothers, um, haven't necessarily gotten along really well in our lives together. It's very different landscape now. Um, but they were going to be staying with us. Um, and I needed to talk to my husband about that. What do you think about that? I needed to talk to my, um, my fellows about that, you know, you, you've followed my journey about this, you know, for all these years, um, what do you think? And I have a sponsor who, um, who is great at reminding me that no is a complete sentence. And my oldest brother who lives out of the country wanted to stay for, um, more days than my husband and I had agreed on um and so i had to say you know um three nights is great for um there's a hotel by the airport um so that was being honest it was setting boundaries um and it was also being compassionate that he was coming a long way and you know we'd love to have you for three nights so you said how to digest that. And it's just, it's it's the constant continue, improve, and practice. Steps 10, 11, and 12. Look at it. Continue. Review it. 11. And then be of service. So
3: thank you for your question, Loretta. Thank you, Loretta. Tina R.
0: Star one to unmute. Hi.
7: Hi, this is Dina R, actually. Dina R. Mm-hmm. Dina R. Thanks for the credit. Um, so I just want to say thank you so much, Leia. Thank you, Phoebe. That was such a beautiful description of how you're going through pain, just managing pain and crisis, like, during daily life. Um, I could really relate when you were talking to a lot of things, especially part where you were saying about um, over, like being over kind to people and how they retaliate. Um, my question is about when it comes up to processing emotions with fellows. Um, so uh, trauma work can, definitely can bring up pulled out emotions and that can lead to resentment. So I've been working on not spilling too much of myself with emotional sharing. That's one of the things issues I have to work on and not being overly reliant on others and it's about asking for advice. So I would love to hear a little of how you have boundaries and balance when you talk about processing your emotions Uh, and and where does the step 10 come in on that process because sometimes I've found like the step 10 will just cut it short and then there's no emotions and I have found timing, like how much time I'll cry for a bit and then go and do a 10th step, but I'm looking for more ideas of how because Life is always different, and I'd love to hear how you find a balance around that.
1: Thank you, Dina. I think that, um, you know, over time, you develop relationships with your fellows. And just like in life, you know, not every single one of my neighbor neighbors is my best friend. Um, you know, not every single fellow that I talk to is my best friend. But I have... I have a core of people that I talk to on a regular basis and we share emotion. Like I said in my share, that I get to talk about my feelings until I'm done. There are some people that I talk to that I feel safe doing that with. There are other people that I don't know as well, um, you know, and we may talk about some things, but not a lot. And it's my choice as to how deep I want to go. And it's your choice to decide how deep you want to go. Um, And the 10th step, um, you know, when I get an uncomfortable feeling during the day, you know, somebody made me mad, um, you know, I have to look at myself and say, okay, what's my part in this? Um, Yep, maybe that person did have a part in it, but what is my part? And then I get to talk about that with my fellows. Um, I pick up the phone and I say, you know, I really need to do a 10-step turnaround right now. Um, And I know who I can call to do 10 steps who will not just say, not just have it be, oh, that was nice, or, oh, yeah, you're doing a really good job. You know, sort of join my team, but people
2: people who
1: will um, push me and say, "Uh, wait a minute here." You know, first of all, where's God in this? And um, you know, you're you're living in the story. Where were you selfish? Where were you self-seeking? Where does your pride come into this? So I think the phone calls help you seek out.
3: Um, a group of people who you can do that with. So, thank you. Thank you very much, Tina R., for your question. Marina K., star one to unmute. Hi, Phoebe, this is Rowena.
7: Thank you so much for your talk, and thank you for sharing that with us. It was just so tender, and I was really moved by it. Um, my question is relating to your experience of relapse, um, because I, you know, I, I can totally identify with that. Is there anything different this time, currently? You know, is, did, was there a point when things changed for you? Um, yeah, that's what I want to know. Thank you.
1: Well, I described that last day that um, I was absolutely desperate. Now, now, I had thought I had been at desperation before, but clearly I hadn't been. Um, and something just happened. I was, I was at the, I mean, I was literally lying on the floor of the closet. You know, there could not be anything more literal than lying on the floor of the closet.
3: Um so you know
1: I'm the only one
3: who knows
1: um what the depths of that desperation felt like. Um I also shared it with people. Um and I remember when I was coming out of one relapse when I started a structured program um someone said to me um, let us pull you out of the quicksand, meaning the fellows in the program. and this was this was a couple of, this was about a year and a half before my final relapse. Um, so it's incremental. For me, I didn't get struck abstinent. It took a while and it was incremental. Um, and it was you know a lot of weight loss, a lot of weight gain, losing it, gaining it, losing it, gaining it. Um, damage to my body, um, all of those things that, that you, I'm sure you all can relate to on the line. Um,
3: and talking to people and saying, I'm scared, um,
1: I've been lying, um, and because I had fortunately developed some people um, that I could talk to and be honest with. They didn't leave me. They hung in there with me, and I said that. You know, people hung in there with me, even through relapse. Uh, so, again, it's a we program. It's the fellowship of the program, and we hear God through our fellows. Um, so I hope that's helpful, Rowena.
3: Thank you so much, Um I do appreciate it. It's very helpful. Thank you. Thanks.
0: Rowena, Michael M, your turn with a question. Star one, unmute.
8: Thank you very much, um, Michael M. I'm not sure of a question or uh, I I will, I think higher woke me up just to hear this part. Um, I, I Was sexually abused. Anyone who was a altar boy or altar girl, especially also whether they know what I'm by, by parochial, by a priest, and i uh didn't know for years I knew what happened, but I didn't know I had these flashbacks, but I didn't really know they were i I thought they were like photos in my brain that just popped out and of course i've been in i'm a long timer with all my life three sides are close so thank thank you for vision and your and being there and I, I guess that's my question. Is like, it how how? And believe it or not, I was a clinician. What do you, what do people do? All but why do all it hid? And I really nobody really likes to talk about it. I'm older. Even therapy. I had an unbelievable uh, hippie kind of therapist one time, and my friend said, "What are you crazy?" But when she said to me. She asked a question in the... Michael? Yeah. What do I do with the... I'm sorry.
0: please. Thank you. Um, Thanks for sharing your experience, but this is a time for questions, please.
8: How do you stay abstinent, even having flashbacks or having bad memories? That's Um, my question. Okay. Mm
3: -hmm. So, Michael, I don't want
1: to get into too many details. um, Mm -hmm. And I would be happy to talk with you outside of this um, about that experience. Um, Mm -hmm. So, I'm going to be giving my number at the end of the meeting. So, feel free to
3: give me a call, okay?
8: Thank you very much. Okay.
3: Thank you, Michael. Jessica B., your turn
0: to ask a question please
5: hi this is jessica g in florida um and it's g as in girl um so i had a question for you phoebe thank you so much for your beautiful share um and i'm sorry for your losses and um i was wondering if when you were first working the steps maybe when you first started or after a relapse what what were the warning signs or those points, as you were restarting, if you will, um, that that you were noticing? You were still trying to control, trying to control um, yourself or the plant or the program. And how how did you kind of find the humility to admit that and to um, and to give up?
1: Great question. Um. I, um, so I think the warning signs were, I knew when I was lying, I knew when I was lying to my sponsor. Um, you know, I call my sponsor every day and commit my food. Um, I was not telling the truth. Um, you know, did I eat what I committed? Um, Yeah, I ate what I committed. My sponsor never asked me, did you eat anything outside what you committed? And I thought that I was telling the truth, but I was really lying by omission because I was binging. Yes, I ate what I committed and a whole lot more. Um, You know, I'm the only one who knew I was lying and being manipulative. Um, You know, I'm the only one who knows that. And were they little nudges from God? Maybe. Uh, and once I started being honest and honesty for me, like I said, for me, my first act of surrender every day is putting my food on the scale. And am I honest? Am I actually having one cup of cottage cheese? I committed a cup of cottage cheese. And am I actually eating one cup of cottage cheese? Um, It's not, I think I'm eating one cup of cottage cheese. No, I'm actually eating one cup of cottage cheese because I measured it. For me, that was very important. Other people don't need that. I can be so manipulative and I'm so good at lying that I needed that kind of accountability. So having that kind of accountability with my food then allowed me to move on to have that kind of accountability in my life. Um, and yes, I had many relapses. That's what brought me back every single time, though.
3: And with that, I'll pass. Thank you, Jessica G., for the question. Kathy Jo P., you're up.
5: Hi, this is Kathy Jopia Recovered Compulsive Overeater in Minneapolis. And thank you so much for your very wonderful, real, tender share, Phoebe. What I want to ask is, there are so many places where I feel recovered and I feel like I am learning to do that pause. And you shared examples of where you're learning to pause as in with the funeral and the relationship with your sister-in-law letting her drive the bus where you want to go. And I relate to all of that and have had much change. The place where I don't have a lot of change in the pausing is in my family, my two children and my husband. And during this quarantine time, it's especially challenging. And I would just like to hear from you if you have places where you're still turning over to God, learning to pause, um, and where you might not feel recovered. And I'll pass. (laughs) I have to chuckle
1: um, because my husband's actually listening. Um, And um, yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Do I forget sometimes to pause with my husband? Yes. The beauty of this program is and it happened yesterday morning. I can't even I can't even remember what it was and I said to my sponsor this morning, "Yes, I had an apology to make last yesterday, but I can't remember what it was." Um I said something. Um I made like a snarky comment or reacted. You know, I've been working on um responding rather than reacting. But what's different is that within five or ten minutes, I knew that I owed him an apology. Um, That's part of the pause, too. You know, yeah, I was feeling agitated and doubtful at my own response. And so I went back to him and apologized.
3: Um, Am I
1: perfect at it with him? Absolutely not. You know, I said, I, I answered to another person who asked a question a few minutes ago. I'm a human being. And, um, you know, I can react sometimes. The difference is, and if you feel recovered in other parts of your life, Kathy Jo, you've got it. You know, you know how to, how to catch it, even after it's happened. That's what we get to do. We get to go back and apologize. And the pause sometimes is not before something happens. It's after something happens, too, because we're agitated or doubtful about our own response. So, yeah, we're all living in tight quarters these days, and it's pretty easy to get carried away with reactivity. And yet we have this program that reminds us that, yeah, maybe we reacted. Let's take a look at what, you know, Why why am I feeling doubtful here? Why am I agitated? What what happened with me
3: and and do I owe an apology? So, I hope that's helpful. Thank you Kathy Jo
0: P for your question. And Judith R, you'll be our final quest have our final question for this morning. Thank you.
7: Thank you, Leah. Thank you, Phoebe, so much. Um, I'm your Judith R., gradually recovered in southern Vermont. I'm your neighbor, thank God. <laughs> um, I'm always asking about the 10th step. Um, you did talk about it so far, but I'd like to know how many you do a day. How, how
3: Have you gone through phases of doing more and doing less? Um, yeah, that's my question. Oh, well, it's
1: nice to have another Vermonter on the line. I know there's at least one other Vermonter on the line, too. Um, mm-hmm. I I I don't necessarily do a lot of 10 steps during the day. Um, I am retired. So um, the person that I'm interacting with the most right now is my husband. When I was working... I might have had more 10th step fodder than I do right now. Um, And yes, I do go through phases of needing to do more. And it's often when I'm in that phase of wanting to be the director, you know, and that's what gets caught in the 10th step. Um, You know, there's no formula. We're all different and we're all our personalities are different. Our demeanor is different. how we operate in the world is different and the people that we interact with are different. Um, so there, it's not a formulaic kind of thing. Um, so have there been times when I've done more tenth steps than currently? Yeah, there are. Um, I think when I'm under stress, probably, um, there may be more going on. Um, you know, with with the stress of work, when I was working, and I just retired a couple of months ago, um, were there more you know with the with the stress of family stuff as we approached my brother's service? Were there more? yep, there were um, so I'm not sure whether that answers your question or not, but I hope so.
3: Thank you, Judith R, for your question. Thanks to everybody who posed
0: questions this morning. And, of course, thank you so much, Phoebe, for giving so much of yourself this morning and sharing your experience, strength, and hope in such a touching and beautiful presentation. Much appreciated. We're going to, again, the share ID for Phoebe's presentation this morning, 14,468. That's 14468. Going to close in the way we always close on Sunday mornings, from page 164 in a chapter entitled Division for You. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got.